with issue for all women. Hello and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. Mickey here, hoping you're all as well as can be expected in the ongoing binfire that is human beings reign on Earth. Come on, alien overlords. It rained sand this week, so I assume your arrival is imminent. While we wait, here is a chat I had with the brilliant Professor Jane Monkton-Smith. Jane is a criminologist specialising in domestic homicide. She's also a former police officer, a professor of public protection at the University of Gloucestershire, and she's responsible for groundbreaking work on coercive control and stalking. Her latest book is In Control, Dangerous Relationships and How They End in Murder, in which she lays out the eight stages of a domestic homicide timeline. It's the first temporal sequencing of domestic homicide and vital to helping stop the appalling rates of domestic murder. Jane has interviewed people who have killed their partners or ex-partners, mostly men, but also a woman, and the conversations are both fascinating and fury-making. It is an outstanding book, which should be required reading for anyone working in the criminal justice system with cases of domestic abuse, coercive behaviour and homicide, and indeed anyone thinking of embarking on a relationship, or already in one, or who knows someone in one. Yeah, I think that covers everyone. And it's huge testament to Jane that despite the subject matter, it is both accessible and engaging. But enough of me, you're about to hear that for yourself. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by Professor Jane Monkton-Smith. She's the author of several books, including her latest, In Control, Dangerous Relationships and How They End in Murder, which one is a book of outstanding importance, I cannot stress that enough, and two lays out the eight stages of a domestic homicide timeline. Jane, hello. Hello. Thanks so much for joining me. Let's start at the beginning. What got you interested in the subject? I did used to be a police officer and I I think that had an impact on if anything I think I said it was like a baptism of fire really and I, particularly in the area of violence against women mm-hmm. and I started to notice how it was excused and justified and uh, and normalized and I started to get really angry I think is the mm-hmm. best word and that anger really built and stayed with me so when I started studying homicide it was that anger that drove that and I just got more and more angry (laughs) and more and more angry how do we stop this excusing and, and justifying of even homicide even murder once that light has gone on and that fire has started in your belly it's impossible to turn it off isn't it it's like that phrase isn't it once you've seen it you can't unsee it you know when I started doing the research into the eight stages and the trajectory and the journey it becomes so clear you can see it happening in real time and you know when you see our agencies and our organizations not responding it just builds you're right it builds that frustration and and anger Mm -hmm. So crime of passion, and listeners, I'm using little bunny ears here, is the lens that is traditionally used to look at domestic homicide. Can we talk a little bit about how bollocks that is, please? Oh, you know, it really, really annoys me. I mean, that crime of passion is literally from the mouths of killers and their defenders. Mm -hmm. Literally. It is there to justify and excuse 
There's nothing in the research that suggests in the majority of cases that these homicides are spontaneous. Mm -hmm. And, you know, about, oh, I loved her so much, I killed her. Oh, she nagged too much, I couldn't take it anymore, so I killed her. And, And everyone walks around and goes, yeah, we know what you mean. That's the most dreadful, dreadful, you know, and and in some countries it was written into law that, you know, that that was a genuine defence. Staying on that subject, when in 2009 Harriet Harman, oh, Harriet Harman, put forward a motion to remove sexual infidelity as a partial defence to murder, she faced huge opposition, including one retired judge and law lord describing the motion as, quote, outstandingly obnoxious and it went on to be defeated in the house of lords so then legislation saying that discovering a partner was having an affair is not a grounds for murder was later passed but then in 2012 judges weakened that to argue that in some cases it could i mean i was reading this in your book and i already know how sexist the criminal justice system is but it's fucking gobsmacking why is society so keen to justify and excuse men's homicidal violence against their partners yeah that quote really got me as well if you can say it's outstandingly obnoxious to say that that woman should not have been killed i don't know where your heads are i would say that you are outstandingly entitled is what you are and you are so used to getting your own way and perceiving of things like violence or control of women as your right, Mm. as your entitlement, that you can't even see past that. And that is obnoxious. That is obnoxious. That women especially are dying. Because I can tell you now, if you look at the the, the statistics, women are not afforded that same defence. If your partner as a woman is having an affair, for example, and you kill them, you are not seen as having the right to no. do that. And and historically, ranting a bit now, but historically, it was even part of the law that if a woman killed her partner, she would actually get a more serious charge than murder. Yeah, was it treason? Petty treason, petty treason. yes, petty treason. Mm. That is an offence where you kill somebody up the social ladder to yourself, basically. <laughs> yeah, I, I chatted last year to Harriet Wistrich, who, of course, is a bona fide hero as well. And just, again, the, the difference in how women are charged and sentenced, having killed partners, even if they've undergone decades of domestic abuse, to how men are charged when they have a, oh, a red mist moment of madness and the planet three mm. days ahead of time mm. um, and are sentenced for killing their partners is just astonishing. Well, women are not generally perceived to have the right to kill their partners, but men are perceived to have the right to kill their female partners. I think that's where the line lies. It's the way that we see what we have the right to do, because if we feel that we have the right to do something, we can justify it and the courts will look after us. Mm -hmm. It boils down to as simple as that. So for the first time ever, and thanks to you, there is a temporal sequence for domestic homicide, which is vital for assessing risk in coercive relationships. And its temporal sequencing has been done for decades for other types of murder. Your book, which I'm going to say again, everyone should read, lays it out in in great detail. But could you give the listeners a brief overview, please? If you want to look at it in headlines, then really, really quickly, 
it's about somebody thinking they have the entitlement to control you, you responding to that by challenging the control and then punishing you for doing that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that puts it into a tiny little nutshell. You know yourself that it's a lot more complex than that. But if you want to understand the mindset, that really does capture it. So you control someone for the reason of trapping them. They try and break out of that entrapment and some of them get killed for doing it. I think what's really telling and a lot of people possibly don't understand is that the perception of challenging control from the perpetrator's point of view can be something tiny that the victim has no idea they're even doing. Absolutely. And you see it absolutely all the time. And sometimes it's not even that they have challenged control it's that the controlling person just perceives it that way and thinks that they have to put the brakes on this and, you know, have to stop this right from the get-go. There was this guy, right, one of the cases I was looking at. He insisted on the evening meal being at five o'clock, okay? Whole family had to observe that. This went on for 20 years where they were observing this five o'clock meal and he would cook the meal. And so everyone had to organise their life around this. Now, that was control. That was a routine meant to control his family. But it was also like an alarm system. So he knew if somebody turned up at five past five, they were challenging him. There would be consequences for that. So they never did that. They never turned up even one minute past five o'clock because the consequences they, they just didn't want to deal with. I think as soon as you read about it or experience coercive control, even just a little, it all seems so obvious. But until you know, you don't know. And we are sold so many lies about romance. Again, I'm using bunny ears and inverted commas that normalise jealousy, stalking and coercive control. Feed into that system of entitlement, aren't we? Yeah. There's another great book called The Gift of Fear by Gavin De Becker. I think everyone should read that book as well. Alluding to what you just said, he said we shouldn't be thinking seeing is believing because that's that's the way we look at everything, mm-hmm. isn't it? Sometimes, he says, you need to believe before you can see. Yeah, totally. So once you learn about coercive control, once you see it and you've got that hard, can't unsee it thing, then because you believe it exists, then you it's it's like a light bulb going on. You can absolutely see it. Yeah. Because it's, you know, it is obvious, but only if you get your head out of this kind of belief system that this is how men behave. It isn't how men behave. It's how some men behave. Yeah. What's brilliant in the book is you have gone and interviewed killers, people who have murdered their partners, men and women. And you go and interview them from the point of they did this thing they were controlling how do we recognize that in other people as opposed to what again we're sold by the media and popular culture all the time like true crime is so popular of but why are they like this and I absolutely fucking love that you were like I don't give a shit why they're like this I just want to know how we can use this to spot it going forward I managed to be very, very focused on what I what I wanted to do. But I'm also I you know, I I'm going to declare my subjectivity, as it were, I do not feel sympathy. And my research was not about 
how did you get to this point? Like you said, I don't care how they got to that mm -hmm. point. That can be somebody else's job. I'm not even remotely interested. What I'm interested in is how do we stop them? So if I can identify one who is at that point, why would I waste my time thinking, how did you get here? I've got to stop someone getting killed. Yes. If it wasn't going to mess up all my wires, I would stand up and applaud you right now because it's it's so unusual to see that. It's so unusual to see that. And of course, it is the way that we need to, to look at this instead of like, like the TV programs about serial killers that, that make you sympathise with them. It's just outlandish. It's just ridiculous. Well, you, we've got to deal with, with where we are. Now, I'm not saying at all that somebody shouldn't be looking at what makes somebody that controlling. Mm -hmm. It's just not me. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that in pretty much all of the interviews you do, these killers try to exert control over you and not just try, but assume they'll be able to. I don't even think it's assume they'll be able to. It's assume. Yeah. It's just assume that they, that they have the right to, the entitlement to control me and what I'm going to say and what I'm going to do for them. And all of them twist the narrative to make themselves the victim. Now, we could say, and it, and it would be legitimate to say, of course, they're going to try and defend themselves. They, they're going to try and, and get a shorter sentence or mitigate it in some way. I completely understand that. But, but having said that, why all of them then? I, mm. and, and why, you know, why do they then start talking about this lack of justice in their lives going back years and years and years? It's like everyone's against them. Every single person's against them. They're not getting their rightful entitlements in life. And it's actually like a burning resentment if suddenly you take what they perceive of as rights away and one of those rights is the right to control their partner and what's also fascinating is again in all of the interviews none of them say the name of the person they've killed because actually admitting that fact bringing that person into it that person who's no longer here because of them ruins their narrative of being the victim well, I don't, you know, I, I mean, if you've read the book, you might remember the, this anecdote. I, uh, I was interviewing one man who was complaining that his children would not come and visit him in prison. Fucking Vincent, man. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and uh, Christ Almighty. So his children were not children; they were adults with families of their own. And he said, "You know, they won't come and visit me." So I said, "Well, why do you think that is?" And he said, well, they always take her side. This is the deceased person, the, the person that he has murdered. He is still seeing it in terms of sides. And he just did something that he was entitled to do. And yet still they took her side. If that doesn't open a door for you, you know, in the mindset of the entitlement of these people, then nothing will. Jane, I know you are a consummate professional and again, I, I salute you, but how you don't at the end of each interview just shout wanker as you walk out of the room <laughs> is beyond me. <laughs> Must be tempted. <laughs> most of my swearing, and I am a very sweary person, believe me, uh, most of my swearing is done when I'm talking to the bereaved families and we are getting into it and we are, you know, supporting each other 
I go into those interviews with a particular agenda mm. and my agenda is to get them to talk without using their practiced words. Yeah. I will do anything to achieve that and I don't think I would achieve that if I was to give any kind of opinion. I, I certainly don't sit there and sympathise with them but neither do I condemn them. I am just sit there and think, well, talk to me then, just speak, speak and I won't interrupt. Let's move to the court system. And I think there's a huge misconception mm. about the justice system in general and how the court system specifically works in that people seem to think that once you get to court, representation for perpetrator and victim is equal. But the power dynamics in our adversarial court system are incredibly skewed, aren't they? They are. We wrongly think, wrongly think that the deceased person or the deceased person's family has equal representation to the killer. They don't. That's not how the adversarial system works. The killer will have somebody who is there solely to defend them. The family will have somebody who represents the state. Mm. They don't actually represent the family they represent the state and the state's interests and because they are representing the state and they are officers of the court they actually cannot speak with the same freedom that the defense solicitor or the defense barrister can so there it is it isn't equal the family do not have a representative just for them um, and that can as well skew the narrative your book really opened my eyes to that and it, it makes sense of the fact that people want their day in court because it is their day and particularly in cases of domestic homicide the killer still has control with what they say often taken as gospel truth which is batshit to me given that they're a killer because the victim isn't there to dispute anything or defend themselves in any way oh well just before I killed her she said this or she taunted me about the size of my cock or whatever and you're like oh and the court goes oh well yeah okay let's put that down as truth oh my god you've just hit a nerve now because um, the, before I wrote this book I, I wrote another book which was about the defence narratives in court mm. and in the in the press and, and the media I gathered together quite a lot of um so things that victims allegedly said just before they died and it was always something like I love you I forgive you somebody who's you know who may be so terrified they can't speak who may not be able to breathe who's who may be grasping onto life the court seems to believe that with their dying breath they will forgive this killer I, to, or say something about you know like I understand why you've killed me it's bizarre I mean I guess we've covered at the top why that is and it's it's an entitlement that goes back centuries but it mm. doesn't stop it being just fury makingly frustrating and and just it these are these are really smart people if you get to be a judge or a lawyer and it just makes them seem stupid to me well, you know, I, I don't think it's stupidity at all. I think it's buying into a certain belief system. Mm -hmm. And um, people who maybe like to have a lot of control will buy into a belief system that says they're entitled to it. Just putting that out there. You know, perhaps, 
<laughs> perhaps we have uh, you know like a, a situation where very entitled people take jobs that give them a lot of power now i am not for one minute saying that all judges or all magistrates or police or barristers i'm not saying that i'm saying none of them are immune to buying into this belief system. And by the way, women are not immune totally. from buying into this belief system as well. Absolutely. Okay, there's a little there's a little nail that I think you just hit on the head there. So let's talk <laughs> about the police. And you are a former police officer. I think it's fair to say the police have quite rightly been given a hard time for failing the victims of rape, domestic violence, femicide. At the murder of Louise Hutchinson in April 2020 springs to mind. So what would you like to see the police do about coercive control, domestic violence and domestic homicide? Well, the first thing I'd like to say is you're absolutely right. The police have been given a really hard time and in some cases, rightly so. But also, I think we've got to remember that even if we train all of our police officers to within an inch of their lives in this, they're still going to have to take this to court at some point. Yeah, yeah. And if the court isn't trained and if the court is still in the old mindset and the whole of the rest of our clunky criminal justice system is buying into the narrative, then it becomes very difficult. So I have seen in some cases, for example, police officers arrest somebody, put them before the court, magistrate or, or a judge just releases them. Yeah. Now, it doesn't matter how trained that police officer is. So it's, it is... First of all, a system problem. The whole of the system needs to stop treating women as if we're disposable. Yes. And the police, yes, they do need to up their game because they are the first point of contact very often. And they are that first point of contact that has all the power to say how this progresses yeah. through the system. So they do have a huge responsibility on their shoulders whether they're given the financial support, whether the resources for their training and the decisions that are made further down the line are good. I, no, they're not. Yeah, and I think we it can extend even further. It's not just a systemic failure in the criminal justice system. It's society. There are still huge swathes of our culture who think women are disposable, who think they can have four girlfriends on the side, but if their wife finds someone else or cheats on them, then their property has done something that they need to punish. Oh, absolutely right. And this is still true. You know, if a woman has an affair, then it is judged very differently to when a man has multiple, multiple affairs. And that I can't actually see that any signs of that changing. You know, think about rape um, and rape legislation. Rape was, in the first instance, a, a, a property crime. Mm. It wasn't about an offence against the, the woman or the person, because if that was the case, they wouldn't have forced women to marry their rapists. Exactly. So, you know, the punishment for the rapist was, well, you've got to marry her now, you've had sex with her. But she completely disposable. Who cares what she thinks? Yeah. Okay, that was some years ago, but the remnants of that, are still in the bone marrow of our systems and our personal belief systems. Yeah. Victim blaming is rife. Absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more. Let's move on to a different but related topic. The stats already show that at least two women a week in the UK are killed by their partner or ex-partner. That 
at least is doing a lot of heavy lifting. And in the book, you mentioned that many murders go unrecognised. So can I ask you what you estimate the real number of domestic murders in the UK to be? This is quite a difficult question, but it's one that I have considered because I'm I'm doing a, a research project which has the title Hidden Homicides. And um, I'm also doing some work around domestic abuse related suicide. Mm. Now, if you bring all of these figures together, so say we've got two a week, we recognise and count as homicides. Now, I have made an estimate and it is an estimate based on uh, the casework that I do and the numbers and and the charities out there doing the same homicide work and some freedom of information numbers which are very very sketchy from the police because they don't record these numbers Mm -hmm. so there could be another two to three a week women dying plus maybe anything between four and ten suicides a week so the the scale of the issue is much 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 bigger than we are led to believe or perhaps even want to believe i think that last bit of your sentence is so key because sometimes when stuff's so horrific just put our heads back in the sand because how how do we how do we tackle what we can't even see it's so hard but you're trying to, so tell us about the hashtag Not Just Another campaign. Work with an awful lot of bereaved families where the death of their loved one has not been counted, has not been investigated. They've had to fight, in some cases, years and years and years to get the police or um, coroners uh, to take notice of them. You know, in some of those cases, in one particular case, eight years, an eight-year fight, and then they get an apology from the police another family a four-year fight and now they finally got a homicide review it shouldn't have to be this way mm. so the the not just another campaign is you know let's just stop treating these awful traumatic deaths as just another just another death yeah let's count them because we don't do that let's count the, the domestic abuse related suicides all of them Let's count the domestic abuse-related sudden unexpected traumatic deaths where, where the, the victim was suffering the most dreadful domestic abuse at the time they died. Let's count them and admit the scale of the problem because if you keep saying two a week, that's because you don't want to change anything. As part of this campaign, uh, you probably know that Bloomsbury, the publisher of In Control, the book, they've sent out a thousand books, one to every single MP in the country and one to every community safety partnership saying, we've got to count the deaths. You can tell, with the help of the eight stages, what's a suspicious death, potentially. One of the ones that you mentioned in In Control that it is it was not treated as a suspicious death. They again just believed the abuser and he had very much been shown to have been abusive was she had packed all her suitcases and then accidentally strangled herself with the bedsheets. Just, I mean, it's not great for a podcast, but I'm a bit speechless. That was the most, the most devastating case. That one, in fact, um, it was, the police were not even called. The police were not even called. It was me who brought them in, like some six or nine months later. And by that time, 
for awful reasons, the forensic post-mortem was actually of no use. So that death, in fact, is just down as an accident. The police believe it was not an accident. Okay, but they just, their hands are tied now, they can't do anything. Their hands are tied now. If it had been dealt with right at the beginning, right at the beginning, if they'd locked, turned it into a crime scene, locked down the crime scene, gathered the evidence, done a forensic post-mortem straight away, I think we'd have had a very different result. Yeah. This might be tricky, but I would like to end on a note of hope. Is there any? Mm. <laughs> yes, there is. of course Good. there is. If you can predict something is going to happen or is potentially going to happen, and this is the thing with timelining, if you like, mm -hmm. is that at every stage there are opportunities to stop it getting to the next stage. And that's the real good news. If you can see it, you can stop it, potentially. That is really good news. So where can people who have listened to this and want to find out more and have already ordered your book, which comes out in paperback <laughs> on March the 17th, where can they find out even more and get involved and add to the voices? The Not Just Another campaign, we're inviting people to support us. We're inviting people to wear the T-shirt and put pressure on their MPs and put pressure on the police. And they can certainly get involved with that. And there, there is a website that you can go to, which is the Not Just Another .co.uk <laughs> .co.uk you can see the letter that has been signed by around well over 200 agencies supporting the count yeah. we're going to be having a little demonstration outside the Old Bailey there are so many things you can do to help us get these deaths counted and acknowledged amazing and Jane where can people find you? I'm at the University of Gloucestershire. If anybody needs to get in contact with me, I think my uh, my email address is out there. But also I'm on Twitter. It's very quick to contact me on Twitter and my DMs are always open. Thank you so much for your incredible, tireless work and for chatting with me. Oh, thank you for having me. Standard issue for all women.